Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, James 3. And we have some Bibles, the fellows do, that uh, we will give to you. If you need one, just get their attention as they make their way down the aisle so that you can follow along as we look at James 3. Those Bibles are marked to that passage, so you don't need to fumble around to find it. And that Bible is yours for the keeping. We want everybody to have a copy of the Scripture, so please feel free to keep that. We're continuing our series through the book of James. The title of the series is on the screen, Real Faith. And the reason we've titled it that is because the theme of the book of James is evidences of genuine, authentic belief. The word faith and the word belief in your New Testament are the same Greek word, and they are sometimes translated one, sometimes the other. So real faith or real belief, authentic, genuine Belief is what the book of James is about. Today, we continue in James chapter 3. If we did not have the Bible to inform our thinking, then we would naturally draw incorrect conclusions about very important matters, matters of eternal life and death. So, for example, if you ask the average person who's not familiar with what the Bible says, if you ask that person what religion is, he'll most likely answer in terms of the things you do. Religion means going to church, praying, giving, reading the Bible. It's the spiritual churchy things you do to have a relationship with God. That's the popular definition. And if you ask the average person who's unfamiliar with the Bible what sin is, the answer will be, it's the things that you do that harm your relationship with God. And so sin is things like murder and stealing and adultery. And to be sure, sin includes those things. And so for most people then, our relationship with God is a matter of doing the right religious things and avoiding the wrong sinful things. We naturally define spirituality then in terms of the good things we do, and we define sin in terms of the bad things we do. But then along comes Jesus and the Bible. And those narrow definitions of religion and sin are expanded to include much more than just what we do. And so we have James saying in chapter 1, if you'll just... Take a look at the end of chapter 1 and verse 26. James says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. It's quite different than the popular definition of doing churchy religious stuff, isn't it? James says it involves much deeper things, including the use of one's tongue. Jesus said famously in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to the judgment. And so James defines religion quite differently than the average person who's unfamiliar with the Bible does. And Jesus is now defining sin quite a bit differently and in a more expansive way 
than the average person unfamiliar with the Bible does. Jesus goes on. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the Bible's definition of religion, sin, these very important matters, quite different than what we would naturally conclude and what most people who don't know what the Bible teaches about these important subjects do conclude. And as it relates then to what sin is, sin is more than just doing the wrong stuff. It is desiring illicit things. In fact, you could say it this way as I have on the screen. Evil desire is sin. Jesus says before you actually commit the act, you have sinned in the evil desire for the the act. It doesn't mean that I'll actually perform the deed. But the desire itself is sin. And to carry it out, to carry that desire out, requires more than just the mere desire. It requires the opportunity. And so, you could have a fuller definition of what sinful deeds are, sinful actions are, this way. It's evil desire coupled with now the opportunity to carry it out. And that, in turn, results in sinful actions. So sinful actions require both desire. And the evil desire is sin at that point, says Jesus. But then if given the the opportunity, sinful people such as we carry it out. And so get this. It means you may think you are fine because of all the sinful things you haven't done. All the things that you haven't actually carried out. But it may well just mean you haven't had the opportunity. Or we may deem ourselves good because of what we've stayed away from without realizing that it's only because we've not had opportunity. And in turn, we may consider others worse than us because they've committed these things that our circumstances rule out. Now hear this. The truth is, friends, you and I are capable of any sin and of actually carrying it out if given the right set of circumstances. And this is why if you put people in different situations, they may be fine in one situation, but you put them in a different situation and you're surprised at what comes out. You're surprised at at what you see. You let a businessman take a business trip to Las Vegas where what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And this otherwise fine, respectable guy goes crazy because it exposes, does the new situation, the heart. And that is why the Bible says this. If you think that you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You see, the idea is this, that you can be standing firm in one place and in one particular set of circumstances. But you can find yourself in a completely different set of circumstances 
that now challenge and expose and reveal a part of your heart that you did not know existed. And you find yourself succumbing now to that new temptation. You say, really? I mean, we're really capable of doing anything? But notice, I said, if given the right set of circumstances. The truth is, I'm not going to be involved in drug trafficking. You're probably not going to be involved in drug trafficking. And so I, if I were a betting man, I would be willing to lay money that that's not going to be the case for most of us, us here. But think of it this way, friends. Think of the ways that you and I are willing to break the law to get what we want. <laughs> break the law? Who are you talking about? Well, I don't do this myself, but I've heard about people who speed up to get through a light, even though turned yellow, and then red just before you go through. Or I've heard about people who slow down when they see a police officer on the side of the road. Now, it's true that I am and you are probably not going to be involved in illegal trafficking of drugs. But I can be and often am involved in illegal trafficking of kin fairly easily and often because I have the desire and I have the opportunity. And if I had grown up in an environment in which selling drugs was the easiest way or perhaps I may have become convinced the only way to get where I wanted, then what's to make me think or you think that you wouldn't do it? That's why the Proverbs, book of Proverbs, says this. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? In other words, who needs the Lord? I have everything I need because I have these riches. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Do you see that this proverb is saying that our circumstances expose things about our hearts that are then enacted in those circumstances as our desires are played out? And just as a just as a, an aside, in this political season, let me say to my politically conservative friends, it appears here that the Bible acknowledges that poverty leads to crime. Do you see that there? Because if I'm poor, I may well be tempted to steal. So just plug that into your policymaking scheme. Now, to to see the truth, then, of this proposition, the proposition being that we're capable of anything in the right set of circumstances, given the opportunity. Think of this. What if there were many, many sins that you could commit, but they require no particular set of circumstances? I mean, you could just do them this morning. You could do them now. You could do it during our refreshment time. You don't have to be any particular place. The opportunity is almost always available nearly any time, anywhere. Well, we have a category of sins like that. 
And it's not with what we do, but it's in what we say. It's in how we talk and what we talk about. The way we use our mouths affords almost limitless opportunity to sin. And you don't need to be any special place. The opportunity is always there, and we are always taking advantage of the opportunity because the desire and the opportunity result in sinful actions and, yes, in sinful speech. And you see it in your life, and I see it in my life. And that's why the Bible says in verse 2 of James chapter 3, If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Since sin with our mouths can take place in nearly any circumstance, hear this, self-control of the tongue prepares us for nearly any circumstance. And so one preacher has said it this way, The tongue, because it is the instant expression of the heart, it can sin more readily and more often than any other member of the body just because of circumstances. You can't get in a position to sin in every way with your body. But you're always in a position to sin with your tongue. Because the tongue can sin so easily, because it's such a monitor of our sinfulness, if you can control the tongue, the greater, the greater sinner in your body, then by virtue of controlling the greater, you gain control over the lesser. The person who controls the tongue will also control the body with all its other impulses. Since the tongue responds more immediately and more quickly and more easily to sin, if it were controlled, the slower responding parts would also be controlled because the means of divine grace applied to the greater are then also applied to the lesser. Now, this is the kind of sin that one author has called a respectable sin. You know, it's not respectable to commit adultery. It's not respectable to commit murder. It's not respectable to do these, but it's okay to gossip. It's okay to slander. It's okay to use your tongue loosely. And what God is saying is it is no more okay than any of those other things. And that, in fact, we have this ubiquitous opportunity, always having everywhere the opportunity to sin with our tongues, and we see the susceptibility of our hearts to sin by the way we actually use our tongues. And so, friends, we need to lose the idea that the way we talk is acceptable sin. The way we communicate, the things we say, more than the things we do, whether religious or sinful, the way we talk is the most accurate barometer of our spiritual condition. A fairly recent study, 2007, determined that on average we speak 16,000 words each day or about 900 words average each waking hour. If you live to be 75, then you will speak about 409 million words. Do we need help with this? 
We need help from God. Let's ask Him as we move forward. Our Father, we thank You again that You love us enough to not leave us where we are, but to show us our condition, and then by Your Holy Spirit and by the truth of Your Word to change us from the inside out. Lord, we desire your work of change because we desire to be like you. And so we ask you to help us to leave this place different than we came, more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, last week we covered the first of the seven points from James 3, verses 1 through 12, that are in the outline that was inserted in your program. I call your attention to that if you'll take that out. We saw in verses 1 and 2 of James 3 last week, the first, and we have it filled in for you, the responsibility of communication. Today, I believe we will get to two more of those seven, and sometime before the rapture, the remaining. Look at the beginning of verse 5. The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Now, I used to think that that meant that with our tongues, one of the sinful things we do in our pride is to brag and boast. And I'm guessing that some of you, if you've read that, you thought that's what that means. Well, it's true that with our tongues, one of the sinful things we do in our pride is is brag and boast. But that's not what this passage is saying. It's saying that there are great and mighty things that can be said about the tongue. Great things like were said at the end of verse 2 that we saw just a bit ago. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Well, that's a great boast about the power of the tongue. And these kinds of great boasts can indeed be made by the tongue, about the tongue, Because control of our communication is control of our whole lives. And so the beginning of verse 5 is simply the conclusion of the truth that's at the end of verse 2. And in between, you have verses 3 and 4, giving illustrations of the power of the tongue. And that's the second item in your outline. You have the responsibility of communication first, but now in verses 3, the beginning of verse 5, the power of communication. The power of communication. Verse 3 of James 3. When we put bits into the mouths of horses, we make them obey us. To make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. And so a powerful animal like a horse is controlled by something as small as a bit in its mouth. And the horse has a mind of its own. And this powerful animal may want to go its own way, but the bit keeps the horse from doing so. And for a ship, a large ship, likewise, a small part, a rudder, gives the ship control and direction. But in verse 4, for the ship, there's an an added element. 
it says there may be strong winds. These strong winds may blow the ship off course and perhaps into danger. And so you have the internal pull of the horse wanting to go its own way, but it's restrained by the bit. And you have the external pressure of the wind on the ship, and both of those, internal and external, are controlled by relatively small parts, a bit and a rudder. And so one commentary said it this way. As to the horse, a comparatively tiny thing, a bit, controls its movements. And James sees the tongue in light of these illustrations of the horse and and the ship because he adds, in the same way, the tongue, in verse 5, is a little member as comparatively small in its setting as a bit and a rudder are in theirs, and it boasts of great things. And the boasts of the bit and the rudder are not idle or hollow. They really do master the violence of the horse and of the storm, and so too the tongue. It makes huge claims, and it can substantiate them too. The tongue is the key factor in controlled living. I'm going to pause just for a moment to point out the title of these series of messages from James 3, verses 1 through 12. You see at the top of your outline? It says, the key to holiness. I think that's the first time in 11 years that I've used the word key in a title for a message. You see sermons all over, sets of tapes that are sold, books, the key, the five keys, the five secret keys. And it's so overworked. I mean, how can there be that many keys? Look, there's either a key or there's not. So I'm telling you, I don't use that word loosely. Control of our communication is indeed the key to holy living, as we're going to see today and over the next week or so. We ask ourselves how we are to control the powerful forces within us that drive us into sin. And James replies by talking about something that most of us have never considered. Do we control our tongues? Are we the masters of the master key? The tongue is the key factor in consistent living. Circumstances vary. There are the pressures of adversity and sometimes greater pressures of prosperity. There are certain and unexpected shocks that come into our lives, the blows of life that come to us. And can we hold our course? And James' illustration of the ship is not at all wide of the mark as a description of how life goes with all of its tides and currents and storms. And once again, there's a rudder, though, to hold the ship of our lives on course, and the tongue, James says, is that rudder. Now, when it says the tongue, if you can control the tongue, you can control everything else about the body. It's not that a person who's strong enough to control the tongue is therefore also strong enough for every other battle. It's not that. It's much deeper, it's more important than that. It's this. It's that winning this battle is in itself a winning of all the other battles. 
So one commentator gives the illustration of a switchboard. He says, think of a switchboard in a church or another large building. Each switch controls the lights in its own section of the church, and the person who controls the switch controls those lights. But on that board, there is also a master switch. It does not need any special strength to operate it. And so no one would say, if you're strong enough to operate that switch, then you're strong enough to operate any of them. The fact is, if you control the master switch, you control all the lights. You're the lord of the switchboard. And it's in this sense that the person who controls the tongue is able to keep his whole body in check. Verse 2. This is the great boast that the tongue can make. And it gets worse. 409 million words in your lifetime. But it's worse than that because actually, we don't always actually say what we're thinking, do we? I mean, you're thinking, for instance, when is he going to be done? But thankfully, you haven't said that. You may have written it to the person next to you, but we don't always, we don't always say what we're thinking. We think in sentences and in words much more than we actually speak. And in keeping with what Jesus says, before you actually commit the act, before you actually say the word, you've actually expressed the desire in your heart and in your thoughts. And so the tongue is so much more than what we actually say out loud. Actual speech, even with all the words that we'll communicate in an average lifetime, it's still only a small percentage of the use of the tongue. The truth is we can't think without forming our thoughts in words. We can't plan in our minds without describing to ourselves the steps in order to execute the plan. We can't imagine without painting a kind of word picture for ourselves. We can't write a letter or a book without kind of talking it through our minds onto the paper. We cannot resent without fueling the fires of that resentment in words addressed to ourselves. We can't feel sorry for ourselves unless we're listening to that self-pitying voice which tells us how bad we've been done in by everybody else. But if our tongue were well under control, such that it refused to formulate those words of self-pity, those images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. And so the tongue is the master switch, even before the words come out of our mouths. And so, friends, do you see the power of the tongue? The Bible goes on to tell us not just the power of the tongue, but also, thirdly in your outline, the perversity, the perversity of the tongue. In the last part of verse 5 and in verse 6, consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. 
So verses 3 and 4 tell us about the, the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue for good or for evil. The fact that the tongue has this controlling ability for everything else that we would contemplate or carry out. But now verses 5 and 6 are telling us that very often the use then of our communication ability, our thoughts that then are often formed into words, is often used in sinful ways, in negative ways, in harmful ways, very pervasive and perverse ways. And so you may be thinking, as I talk about perversity, you're thinking of words that are swear words, off-color kinds of words. And you may say to yourself, I used to do that. I've cleaned up my language. Every now and then something slips. But for the most part, that's not me. But when I talk about the perversity of communication, yes, it includes that. But it, it includes the more subtle ways that we use our tongues in order to communicate sinful things, deceitful things, in very, as I say, subtle ways. I'll give you an illustration. I have a book on my shelf that's called the Evasion English Dictionary. That is, this little book takes phrases that people speak that are designed to evade the truth and translates them into English. So there's what the person says to evade, and then there's what they really mean. And it's a very humorous book because you will find stuff you say in there and that I say in there. And so the Evasion English Dictionary. It has a section called the passive-aggressive, oh well. Now notice underneath, it's in small type there. The passive-aggressive never battles and never loses. It's the passivity. We're not in a fight. I've just had the zinger. And my zinger just sometimes includes an oh well. So what does that look like? No more seats? I guess I'm standing. Oh, well. Or, very kind. Well, you pick first. Uh, it's not quite half, but, you know, oh, well. The waitress comes back. Oh, no, I, I asked for the dressing on the side. Oh, well, no, that's okay. I'll eat it anyway. It's all sorts of subtle ways that we get, our, we get our point in without cursing, without swearing, without off-color. And our minds trigger these things and we use our tongues in these sorts of ways. Here's another one. The author calls it when the phrase, the relationship, actually means you. So, as in, honey... We need to talk about the relationship. Means, honey, we need to talk about you. Or, I just don't feel like I'm getting what I want from the relationship. That means you're not upholding your end of the bargain. Or, even my friends can see that there are problems in the relationship. Even my friends can see there are lots of problems with you. Or as in, you know, the relationship needed a lot of work. 
you needed a lot of work. Now you think about that. 409 million words in the average life. More than that that are formulated in the brain that are never spoken. All of the very subtle ways in which we use our tongues, our mouths, in perverse ways to get what we want, to zing the other person, day in and day out, multiple times each day. And then consider this. Jesus says, People will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. So how do you withstand that judgment? And how do I withstand that judgment? I wish I had a dime for every time I had a counselee in front of me who used his or her gift of communication in ways to deflect issues from themselves and onto others or onto circumstances. If I just had a dime for every time, we would have been in our ministry center a long time ago. And it'd be really nice. You know, a person who is an alcoholic sits in front of me, they've had their umpteenth round with alcohol, their fall, but they say, you know what, it was a, a, quote, a lapse in judgment. We just stopped in for a few drinks, things got out of hand. Notice all the deflection going on. So how are we going to control what we are going to see next week? The Bible says is from a human standpoint uncontrollable. No one can control the tongue, James is going to go on to say. So how does this happen? How do you withstand this judgment that Jesus says we will give an account for every careless word that's spoken? How does that happen? The Bible says... The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The only way that I, the only way that you can gain mastery over the way we talk is by the Holy Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit at work within us. And if you are not making, if I am not making progress in the use of my tongue evident progress in the way I talk, speaking straightforwardly and truthfully, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, as James is going to say in chapter 4. If I'm not making that progress, then friends, we are quenching the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that self-control that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit is not being evidenced. Further, If you have never come to God through Jesus Christ, there is no way you will be able to withstand His judgment. All of us sin, says James in verse 2 of chapter 3. We all stumble in many, many ways. We all sin with our tongues in many, many ways. 
We've seen some of them, just the tip of the iceberg. How would I stand before a holy God and give an account for this gift of communication that He has given to me and the way that I've actually used it? How will you do that? The only way for that to be done is that you do not stand before God with your sorry record. Because if you stand before God with your record and I stand before God with my record, we're finished. But thanks be to God, there was a man, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, fully God and fully man, who walked the dusty roads of Palestine and used the gift of communication precisely as it was to be used. Every time his mouth opened, every time a thought was formed and came out in communication, it was precisely what should have been said the way it should be said. That's what you were made to do and I was made to do. The only way you will stand before a God who looks not just at the religious stuff you do, not just at the sinful stuff you do, but the thoughts of the heart, the words that come out of the mouth, the only way you will stand before that God, and I will stand before that God, is if the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ are given to me. But here's the gospel, the good news. When you come to God through Jesus Christ, the perfection of Jesus, including his perfect speech, are given to you. And you still struggle with sin, and I still struggle with sin and with self-control. But God now looks at me not in my sin. He's now not going to judge me because he's judged it in Jesus on the cross. And he's given me now the Holy Spirit that is chiding me when I use my words in sinful ways. And if you've come to God through Jesus, He's given you His Holy Spirit to develop this self-control in you. There should be evidences of progress in that in our lives. And so, friends, we're going to bow. And as we do, we have all sinned with our tongues, have we not? We're going to bow before our God. We're going to confess those of us that have come to God through Jesus and have His perfection applied to us, including His perfect communication applied to us, we're going to thank Him. or We're going to ask for His blood to cover our sin as we confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And for those who have never come to God, believing that God has come as man, and has done what you could not do, lived a perfect life, talked the way he was supposed to talk, thought the way he was supposed to think, did what he was supposed to do, avoided the thoughts he shouldn't have had, the words he shouldn't have said, the things he shouldn't have done. That should have been your life and my life, but Jesus did that. And then he died to pay the penalty for your sin on the cross in full, past, present, and future. And you can come to him in this sacred moment by realizing that you're a sinner, And don't bother counting up the sins. (laughs) Have you got any idea today you can't do that? They're just, it's just beyond you. It's beyond me. You're just, you sin because you're a sinner. Forget how many times you sin and how many ways you sin. You're a sinner. And recognize that Jesus died for your sin. Repent. 
Lord, I want to go your way. I want to follow you. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. You do that by as we bow, you pray from your heart to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus is God, and he did what I couldn't do. And I ask you to forgive me and to begin changing me from the inside out. I give you my life. Let's bow together. Father, I said earlier that we want you to change us and that we acknowledge that that work of change is painful. And yet, Lord, I also admit that when I am confronted with the mirror of the Word of God and I see myself as I am, sometimes I wish the pain would go away. And though I say I want it, I sometimes do not. So, Lord, forgive me of that. Forgive me of a lack of desire for change, even though the process is painful. But Lord, your Holy Spirit is at work in me and at work in those of us who are your children by virtue of coming to you through Jesus. And you, your Holy Spirit, has caused us to desire to be like Jesus. And so we do. Thank you for this convicting work of seeing what we are like. Maybe even this morning, many of us can think about the way we have used our mouths and our tongues in sinful ways, even if subtle. And we know the habits that we have fallen into. And so, Lord, we ask you to forgive us and to do your work of cleansing our tongues by your Holy Spirit, granting us the self-control that only he can provide. And I pray for any who came into this room without a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And I pray right now that from their hearts to you, They are calling out to be rescued, delivered, to be saved. So that they can have right standing with you because you no longer look at them through their sin, pervasive though it be for all of us, but you look at us now through the perfection of Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit is calling them out of the world and from their sinful desires, changing them right now by giving them spiritual life and a desire to please you in every aspect of their life. We thank you, Lord God, for this time. Help us this week to put into practice what you have shown us from your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.